Welcome to the Programmatic Digest podcast, a discussion of your weekly roundups on top programmatic and digital news with other programmatic ninjas. I'm your host, Ellen Parker, your very own programmatic sensei. You'll find everything we'll discuss today, including expert information, show notes, and all referred articles on our website, programmaticdigest.com. In the Sunset's Corner this week, we welcome PPC expert and magician, Amy Hebden. Amy is the co-founder of Paid Search Magic, a Seattle-based SEM powerhouse. She's a talented visual artist who's interested in behavioral economics and is drawn to statistics and puzzles of logic. Her PPC magical power includes creating paid search account structures that drastically improve results. She's also the co-host of her own podcast with husband James called Paid Search Magic. You can find Amy on LinkedIn and on the paidsearchmagic.com website. Welcome to the Sunset's Corner, Amy. We're so excited to have a true digital magician joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. <laughs> Our discussion this week is centered on targeting efficiencies and some of Google's latest updates, especially how it will affect the paid search kingdom more than the programmatic one. If you're a digital ninja out there working on a campaign that includes both programmatic, social, or paid search, in their omni-channel strategy, I recommend that you learn how the following updates will affect your counterpart and maybe share with whomever you think can benefit from the episode. Our first article is from Ted, Ted McConnell in, in Media Post, Don't Blame Targeting. If I had to recap this article in two sentences, it will be as follows. Targeting is cake, not frosting. Blaming targeting for a poor targeting choice is a little like blaming driving for a car wreck. McConnell wants to really focus on audience de definition, audience de delivery, and time if we really have to blame something. Let me just review the three before we get um, before I get to ask your point of view on this. The audience def definition, according to article, is defined as a well-established research about the brand. The audience delivery is usually not measured except as a gross reach, which Reach is a quantifiable part without the qualifiable attribute. Time is just understanding the optimal when, giving a long purchase cycle, or depending on the season during the year. So, Amy, what do you think of this article? <laughs> I thought it was pretty brilliant, to be honest. I think a, yeah. you know a lot of times we kind of conflate targeting, um, especially when we see something we don't like, either because it's too hyper relevant or it's not relevant enough and we say that there is you know there's something wrong with the way targeting works and to make the point that it's not about targeting it's the particular implementation of targeting i think yeah. is spot on because that's where we run into problem like if if you see something that is completely relevant to what you're looking for that's great. That's not a problem. It's only a problem when you already bought something or decided not to buy it. And then you feel like it's being, you know, following you around or where you wouldn't expect to see an ad and you feel like you're being listened to. Those are, those are when you start to have problems with it. Yeah. And I agree with you. You hit the, the nail on the head there. And also I think in the article, he, he really wanted to redact redirect the conversation about who is actually implementing the targeting like you're mentioning. And in the last few weeks in the industry, especially on the programmatic side, 
um, the conversation about inventory quality has been coming up a lot. And he's just complimenting that conversation in a way that he's asking us digital ninjas to really focus on how we're implementing some of this inventory that we're buying. Now, he wants, we're, we're fo- focusing here on targeting. And I, I want to highlight also that he's specifically talking about audience targeting. And he mentioned how every agency offers some type of targeting from different level, whether it's third party, first party data, affinities, lifestyle, psychographic, etc. I thought it was also a very interesting article. And I kind of agree with him in terms of because of a lack of either training and understanding about how targeting should be implemented, we do, it does give the rest of us and the industry a bad rep because it's done poorly by somebody or by an agency. Um, so I, I do want to, you know, give the rest of the, the ninjas out there just maybe a couple feedback here before we move on to the, uh, the, the next article. Because in my professional opinion, the targeting is just the mechanics of relevant and intelligent reach, which if completed correctly can lead into substantial results that we would want. Targeting goes beyond audience seg- uh, segmentation. It's, it can include geo, it includes time, like the article said, it includes channels and uh, a little bit more. So if you are listening to this and need are not really confident about how your audience targeting is implemented, I would recommend that you take a step back and QA your setup and go back to how the audience is implemented. Maybe reach out to some of the the data partners you are buying the segments from. If you're working through a DSP, you are more than welcome to reach out to whoever is your point of contact. But also if a data partner is not willing to explain to you how this audience is being captured and segmented, please run away. Every <laughs> legitimate, <laughs> respectable data partners out there will take the time to sit you down and say, here's how we're segmenting this audience. Here, how you want to implement it for a B2B uh, campaign or for a CPA goal of this. Another thing that you want to maybe re- maybe consider is partnering with some of the brand safety partners like a Peer39, a Mode, or Double Verify just to help also add on that layer of uh, fraudulent concern to just remove that layer, I should say. that Those would be my, my couple recommendation here if you are in this situation and you're not too, too, po- too positive or confident about exactly what you're targeting out there. Yeah, I think and I think those are great points. Another thing that I I have found works particularly well is being really mindful of contextual targeting. And in my experience, that the push for contextual has gone away because the idea is is that um, as long as they're reaching the right person, then it really doesn't matter what site they're on. But there's a big difference if you're showing, let's say, you have. Um, a SaaS product and you're demoing the SaaS product in front of another video about, you know, a training or tutorial versus if you're running that same video in front of the, you know, late night with Jimmy Fallon. Like if someone's on YouTube, like they're going to skip one and they're going to watch intently the other because of what they're trying to accomplish at the time. The way I've started kind of explaining this is I love chocolate and I really like roasted Brussels sprouts. I don't want chocolate on my roasted Brussels sprouts. You can be really interested in two different things, but not want them together. 
I, I think when it comes to how we're placing the ads, we really have to be careful about making sure it's contextually appropriate. Because if it is not, not only does it not accomplish our objective, but it can do more harm than good. And it can be one of those things where either the brands have a problem with it because brands often don't want to be associated with tragedy or certain things or else it's just yeah. not accomplishing something. And so we have to be really careful about you know, what is the full experience that the end user is having as opposed to just we want to get in front of them as, as frequently as possible because there can be those other their, you know, those unintended consequences. I absolutely agree with what you said. Yes, audience targeting could be one of your tactics, but be mindful of contextually targeting, be mindful of other type of targeting levers that you can implement to make sure you are remembering of, you know, the brand integrity, but also to the consumer journey um, mm-hmm. experience. So yeah. yeah. So let's move on to the articles number two, which is an article you suggested to discuss. And I'm really, really interested into finding out a little bit about what you have to say. It's an article from Ollie Gartner on Unbounce.com. The simple reason why your B2B lead gen conversion rates are completely wrong. <laughs> According to Ali Gartner, the co-founder of um, Unbounce, there are three levels of marketing IQ which have their own version of how a lead generation campaign should be measured. He defined all three, but we will focus on the optimization that he performed using the high IQ marketing strategy. And he really wanted to redirect the conversation in terms of let's make sure we focus on micrometrics versus just uh, <laughs> the top level metrics. Some of the micrometrics he he optimized in this um, in this articles were the spams emails, which are all submitted by bots, the fake emails, which are submitted by humans and branded emails, which is uh, like a business like uh, Ellen or info at programmatic mm-hmm. So let's go over the three micrometrics and how he really optimized for success because that was very informative to me. My lead gen optimization knowledge stops at the programmatic level, which usually don't involve the the end of things where we're able to review those leads coming through. We only know the amount that we sent. Right. So when he optimized spam emails, he implemented a captcha or honeypot, which was pretty e- pretty easy. And then fake emails, he entered. Um, he added a simple statement like, "Enter email address you'd like to send a course the course link to." And he noticed that fake emails dropped from seven point nine percent to five percent, which is a thirty five percent improvement. The final micro metric we'll review is the branded email. Again, this is the business email, and he implemented um, basically he changed the label in the lead form to enter email from enter email address to enter business email, and the number of branded emails went up by sixty percent. So what's your take on some of this optimization? Do you have any additional maybe optimization feedback for a B2B lead gen like the one mentioned in the article that Ollie may have missed? Yeah, well, I think it's it's such an interesting approach, right? To say there's there's different IQ levels and there's yeah. low, fixed, and high. Yes. I, I I agree with that, and I think you know even you know the low IQ is not even going to notice the problem. The fixed IQ is going to try to control for. Or, or account for the problem, and the high IQ is going to try to fix or improve the problem. The the I would say almost irony in this article, though, is I feel like it's not actually addressing the bigger issue, which is the problem is the the tension between the 
the visitor wants the information. They don't want to give their email address. The reason that they're giving a fake email address is because they don't want to get on someone's list. And so if you can convince someone to get on your list who doesn't want to be just because you're kind of strong arming them into saying, hey, if you, if you want this thing, we're holding it hostage. We're only going to give you this content if you enter your business email. Well, I'll give you my business email, but I'm not going to answer your phone, your phone call when the sales team calls me. I'm not going to buy your product. Like I'm not any more interested in your product just because you got me to give you the thing that you want from me, right? It's kind of like an extraction tool. And so I, I do think it becomes really interesting. Like does, does that solve the problem? Are people going to become customers because you trick them into giving the email that you want and not the one that they wanted to share, which might have been no emails at all, right? Mm-hmm. So it does, it's, it still doesn't solve the problem. You're not getting someone to buy from you. You're getting someone on your list, which they could report as spam right away. They could you know, remove themselves right away. So like what, how, how much further in the journey does it get you? It's such an interesting um, dichotomy when it comes to that, but like in terms of solving for those problems and excluding, excluding bots and just having a better picture of like, did we get what we're trying to get? I think that the steps he walks through are very appropriate to, you know, at at least take that first step of excluding um, just wrong or bot traffic or fake emails that, you shouldn't be adding to your list or measuring as a success metric in the first place. That's an interesting point because if I had if I had this the similar campaign and I was running it on the programmatic side and the goal was indeed the downloads of that course or whatever it was. And the second primary, I mean the second KPI would be, you know, capturing that those uh, the potentials customer that would turn into either a sales or a brand uh, advocate. So on the programmatic side, my role would be more on the awareness and making sure I'm already targeting somewhat of the audience that would be converting into that legion. And so I'm very interested in terms of knowing where search will come in and how how you think, for instance, like a search tactic can help complement this, the, the tactic that he's doing. Because ultimately, you know, all tactics work really well together as long as we, <laughs> we have implemented the car- targeting levers that we need to implement and that we're at niche as possible. I've always said that for B2B campaigns, you can't just run awareness campaign and run of network and target everybody on this planet. No, mm-hmm. it's right. a business to business <laughs> campaign. You must target a, a niche audience, which means that the cost may be a little bit higher. But if the message is relevant and the targeting is where it needs to be, at least you'll see positive results that can help you define like the following steps for another another tactic, like implementing my marketing uh, lead generation or implement the social here and there. When you're thinking, and this is just me uh, picking on your <laughs> picking your brain here, I'm just re- really curious about how you would implement this. But if we speak in terms of omni-channel strategy. So let's imagine that this this is an email marketing that Ollie is is running where he is optimizing on the back end the results from the search and the programmatic tactic. How would you utilize what Ollie's optimizations or like what my optimization if we ran together, how can that this this how can we marry the whole tactics here in a positive way? Well, I think that you know the optimizations that you're discussing, like and and the, and that the article mentions, are all appropriate. The mm-hmm. next step is lead scoring, right? The next step is to figure out just because we have someone's 
work email address, does that mean they want what we're offering? Because, you know, there, I have, I have experienced, especially when it comes to B2B lead gen, where there can be, there can be a pretty big disconnect between get this guide that's going to teach you how to do something and buy our service, right? Like, yeah. I don't, I don't want your service. I want to, this ebook or, or whatever, you know, the, the value or incentive is. And so just because I sign up for something doesn't mean I'm a good fit or interested in the final product. And so sometimes you have to keep that in mind when you're even building out, well, what is an appropriate lead magnet going to be? Is this going to attract people who are ultimately interested in our product or, you know, a, a larger pool and, you know, we, a small fraction of them will be interested in the product? Or is there a better way that we can kind of create harmony between the type of profile that we're looking for and what this person, the problems that they're trying to solve right now, because that's been my experience is a lot of time. It's like, get the gardener report, get this other thing. And it's like, that thing is useful to me. And maybe I'll share my contact information in order to get it. But there's no connect for me between wanting that thing and wanting the paid product that they're ultimately trying to sell. Right. It's a good point. You're really highlighting how no matter what, we should be mindful of the consumer journey here, which is very important as well. Yeah. Let's move on to article number three, which is an article from Matt Southern from the searchenginejournal.com. Google Ad is emailing accounts that haven't switched to automated bidding. You know what, Amy? You posted something about this on LinkedIn, um, sharing your point of view. Why don't you go ahead and take a lead here? Can you let myself and the listener know what happened? Yeah, absolutely. So what has been happening over the last couple of weeks is that Google has been aggressively reaching out to both agencies and actually end clients saying you need to, you know, switch your bid strategies, you need to make these changes to your account. And I think some people heard that and misinterpreted it to be like the spam calls that you frequently get where someone there's a bot recording that will say, I'm your I'm your Google rep and I'll help you get on page one. Like, you know, just things that are fake. This isn't fake. This is real. This is really either Google or Google's, you know, Third people party. who are yeah, contracted by Google reaching out on behalf of Google to try to make those changes. And so it can really, it can cause a real conflict of interest where you have Google contacting a client directly and saying, hey, you know what, the way your account is set up is suboptimal, because obviously Google has a lot of cred behind it, where we can't go in and say, oh, well, Google doesn't know what they're talking about, because why are, why are we spending all this money on the search engine if they don't know what they're talking <laughs> about? Like, we have, we need to have a lot of faith, and we need our clients to continue to have a lot of faith in the platform to be able to deliver the results that they want. So why would we not listen to them? But the conflict of interest comes because Google isn't rewarded if your business does well. Google is rewarded if it can report a, pro you know, a, a profit increase to its shareholders. And Absolutely. so what, what gets you to spend more money? Like we can think, oh, you know, the, the invisible hand and in the long run, you'll only spend more money if you see better results. And so they wouldn't ask us to do anything that's not in our own best interest. Well, that's not true. Like it's really easy to get short-term profits and kind of configure the data in such a way that you can say, look, look at all the, the reach you got. Well, you know, we're not using a search engine try to try to get reach or using a search engine to try to grow our business. And if we're not accomplishing that, then reach doesn't matter at that point because no one's paying, you know, $30 to click. They're, they're not, they're not feeling that at all, right? You're charged $30. They're just clicking on something and hitting the back button. They're not remembering it. So we yeah. need to be very cautious about how we have everything set up and make sure that we're not just moving over to automated strategies to give Google more control to charge our clients more for no reason. Like that, that really becomes problematic. Do you have any recommendation for anyone going through, through this? Because I remember this is, this started like about a year ago. 
when one of the the search team members brought it up in one of our campaign manager meeting where, oh, are you guys, do you guys know that this is happening? We've received this email back from a client saying that they reach, they've been reached out directly from Google. Is there any solution even to discuss here? Like if something like this is happening, what is the first couple steps you want to make sure to implement right away? Right. So, I mean, this, I think this has always happens to some extent that Google is willing to reach out to a to a client or you know they they try to persuade their mm-hmm. advertisers to behave a certain way right and sometimes that includes direct outreach um what we found to be most effective is one getting ahead of it just like letting our clients know like when we hear things like this and we can let let our clients know that Google might be reaching out if they do just kind of like prepping them for it um okay. the uh, the other thing you know because if you can get ahead of it then when it happens they know yeah. it's coming they're not surprised the other thing that i have honestly and I, I can't even say that I've done this, but I, I would consider doing it if it were to come up <laughs> is just, you know, when some of the problems that I've seen happen with, um, you know, my colleagues is that when someone, when there's a, there's a contractor who's saying they represent Google, um, the, the client thinks that they must know everything because they work for Google. And yeah, I think that no. that can be dispelled pretty quickly yeah. when you say, oh, how long have you been there? How long mm-hmm. have you been doing this? Oh, six months. Okay, you probably don't know as much as my 10 years or whatever, you know? <laughs> so it becomes pretty easy to make it about this person versus me as opposed to Google versus me. And if you can have that conversation, then I think that that helps to diffuse like the the perceived authority that they carry. That's a good point. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And uh, for our amazing listeners, I will be including Amy's original post on this um, in our show notes. Oh, cool. So last article, I mean, this article is a quick update, uh, again, about Google Ads before we get to the last articles. And it's from Ginny Marvin from searchengineland.com. Prepare to say goodbye to your average position in Google Ads on September 30th. This might be a quick conversation here with you, um, but just a recap of the article includes Google is getting rid of the average position metrics and they're strongly encouraging, um, you know, fellow ninja like yourself to start using the transition metric they introduced last year. Um, in the show notes, you'll have uh, you'll have a definition of each of those um, metrics. But just to name them out loud right now is the impression absolute top rate, impression top percentage. Sorry, I think it's a percentage um, uh, formula here. And then there's a search absolute top, and then there's a search top impression share metric. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I know you've got, covered this po- topic on your own podcast, The Paid Search Magic, with your co-host and husband, James. Can you just give us like a quick highlight or your paid search magic pros and cons for this update before we move on to the last article? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to Google updates, it just is, right? It just it, it is the thing. We don't get yeah. it's not up for debate. I think a lot that's of people it. are like, oh, if, if we if we protest, like, that's not going to get you anywhere. Like, we just Sign have petition. to. Right, exactly. Because we can't we can't go change.org and, and you know make it make a difference here. But I think honestly, I, one of the one of the bigger challenges I've had dealing with clients, one of the bigger challenges I've had dealing with clients is that they think that average that they think that the goal 
of what we're trying to do for them is to get them to number one. And like, you can explain as much as you want, but they just have this, you know, shiny object of like, we have to be number one on Google. And like number one on Google, as you probably know, does not exist as a thing because depending on where someone is and what their search history is and what their profile is, uh, it's, it's not a constant. It is It becomes an average, but then you're averaging in you know, the, being on the top, being in number one position on mobile, how that's different from being in, uh, in that position on desktop when there used to be right rail, when, when sometimes the first paid listing is actually underneath the organic listings, uh, being in number one can mean a lot of different things. And so it ends up being a, just a, not a very precise metric. metric. Um, it, okay. Number one refers to auction rank, not position. And so to get rid of what you're calling position makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it tends to be really overvalued, you know, particularly because people don't just buy from the top link. Like unless you really have like a true emergency service where someone's just clicking the first thing they see and then, you know, they've got a, a like a plumbing problem, they just need a plumber right now. Like anytime there's any element of research to it, they're they're researching, they're they're doing more than one search, and they're clicking more than one link. Um, just that people tend to really overvalue this position in a way that does more harm than good because then they're willing to overpay for it where it doesn't necessarily drive more business value for them. And so mm-hmm. I think getting rid of that is just going to be a little bit simpler that we can't just fall back on this kind of meaningless, not very useful metric to try to use as a KPI, which it really should never be. Okay, so the final article is from Lori Sullivan in Media Post. It's an article about uh, research completed by the Advertising Research Foundation about the price consumers put on their data. (laughs) Uh, It looks like consumers are less likely to share their personal information, such as like a first name, last name, home address, spouse's name. Um, But most surveyed adults priced their personal information between $10 to $20. Would you ever put a price on your personal information? I think this is more an exchange of value than a price, right? Like I will give out my email address all the time. Like I wouldn't give out my password or social security number, but like <laughs> in terms of like sharing like my my just my email address, I'll do that all the time if there's something I want. I won't do it if there's something that I don't want or I don't care about or doesn't or seems very low value to me. So when we're saying um, you know, thirteen percent would sell for between eleven and twenty dollars, and yeah. right, four percent would be want twenty dollars or more. Uh, we're really looking at like what's the exchange of value there? How worthwhile does that lead magnet or incentive need to be in order to get them to exchange? Because uh, I'll be honest, I've had I've had plenty of campaigns I have run where I had no better landing page than a contact page. It is not ideal. It has oh, been the situation yeah. because the client isn't thinking through it and they won't give us better assets and they're just like, we'll just run with this. And so we're tra- taking people to a contact page where the value of filling that out is zero, right? There's yep. nothing that you get in return for it. And it's I mean, probably even negative because like, then what do I do when they contact me? I don't really know what this is. It's not very clear. So by, by think, by putting, by quantifying that, I think it can just help us when we're trying to help set client expectations of here's a thing. This is a researched idea that we should be providing this level of exchange of value rather than just taking someone to a form and thinking that because they're at a form, they'll fill it out because that's just not how it works. 
And, you know, that's a good segue into my next point here, because what really surprised me um, from the from the article is that Sullivan pointed out how most consumers do not see the value in sharing their data for personalization advertising message improvement, mm-hmm. some of which may be created with the misconception or misunderstanding of how the data is actually being tracked and other really technical terms such as like first party data, data storage and so forth. So it is a pretty interesting way to to put it. And I was very surprised surprised that anyone will even put a price on on their information but if you put it in that perspective in terms of like what value am I going to get in order for you to you know for, for you to for me to sell you my information but at the end of the day it just becomes so transac- transactional yeah like if you if you go somewhere and and you get a $47 ebook for free by giving your email address that's much less of a hurdle than if someone just says you know, fill out this form. Or when you get into that personalization issue, I think sometimes people just don't even understand what that means. Like my yeah. mom hears that hears that Gmail reads emails and she thinks that there are literally people at Google reading her emails. And like, doesn't matter how many times I explain to her, that's not what's happening. That's what <laughs> she believes is happening for some reason. And so like privacy and personalization mean different things. Like it, it conjures up a different idea in different people's minds. And so sometimes they just don't have a good understanding of it. And sometimes they know exactly what's happening. They're just annoyed by it. It really depends on, you know, on the audience there. I don't remember where I saw that, um, the articles, but I remember reading an articles about like how most consumers are not aware of, of course, how their data is being utilized by the advertising industry, but also how very little interest they had into finding out or into preventing their data to be reached or their privacy uh, data to be reached. And it was like a high percentage. I think it was like a high 70% of consumers don't care about privacy data and or don't really understand it. I mean, it's it's so crazy how that number was high. I, I'm going to go back and do and, and pull it. But this this article right here from Sullivan and the one I just read, it's just really crazy how there's so much information out there for you to be able to protect some of that, that data. And now, <laughs> anyway, we I think we, you and I can probably talk about this for... <laughs> days because this is a a topic I'm very passionate about but I would love to move on to the next segment Mm -hmm. (laughs) so in the next segment uh, we like to shine our diversity light on either a brand a creative or an agency that's uh, done diversity right or wrong so do you have um, anyone in mind that you would like to share with us maybe in the next two three minutes yeah, I think that representation um, and, and diversity is so important in both like who's who's building the product and then in the casting, like who's the face of the product. And I, there, there's so many important examples. And the one I want to share with you is not an important example, but it is one that I have personally experienced where I, I feel like it it was wrong enough that really got me thinking early in my career about the importance of it kind of shapes more it shaped things for me um so my client had um well my the agency I was working at had a client that was like a lingerie company it's kind of like a a item of the month sort of club it was a direct response client and they had me kind of at the 11th hour review this website that they'd built out for the client it was like shockingly bad to me um and it didn't make a lot of intuitive sense and it just felt wrong and gross Mm -hmm. um and you know because we're looking at like this lingerie right and 
I, I was like, it just feels non-intuitive to be sorting. And I realized like, why does this feel so weird? Because you know, this was put together only by men who'd only consulted with each other. They were, they were sorting by cup size rather than band size. And so like, it was just like so weird of like, this isn't how we search for things. And then they had the images cropped. And I honestly think they did this with good intentions that they, they had cropped so that the model's head and torso were not in the picture. It was just like the bra. But I think they were trying to be sensitive, like, you know, trying to like desexualize it a little bit or make it more clinical. So it was just about the product, but it really was like very jarring and objectifying. And it was like super obvious, like if you're a woman and you're looking just like at a, like a row of boobs in different bras, you're like, no, this isn't okay. But to them, like they just didn't know, they didn't understand and they weren't their market. And I think that's always the danger of whenever you're creating something where you're not the end user and you don't know how to be mindful of your end user, you're just bringing your own assumptions into it. I mean, it's not their fault that they're not women, they don't have these experiences, but we all have our own biases and curse of knowledge. And the more we can do to overcome that and really get to know our audience and have empathy for our audience, the less likely we're going to run into those problems. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, that's. I was just cringing as you were talking about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at the thought of I don't know. There's just so many things we can say here, and <laughs> I absolutely understand and can recognize that representation is so important. Like. I love I love supporting brands that are like created by women for women or created by good black men for black men. I just got my husband. Um, Bavel is one of Tristan's Walker product. He's absolutely been loving it. And, um, and I feel so good about first supporting a black owned company, but also with just like that idea that it's a black man that <laughs> that created a product made for black men specifically. And which mm-hmm. is also an underserved consumer uh, bracket in our industry. One of the reasons why I make sure to bring in diversity and inclusion and all of the above is because uh, of those type of example that you, you literally was the only woman in a room full of men uh, looking at a lingerie. I'm glad that you, you were able to share this such a personal experience before. And uh, whoever hope that a lot of people are not going through this right now. Yeah, for sure. But that's just wishful thinking. Um, (laughs) Now we're moving on to our closing segment. So Amy, before we part ways, do you mind sharing three fun facts about yourself in less than 30 seconds? So I'm a licensed massage therapist. That happened kind of later in my career, but I decided I didn't want to just be a knowledge worker. So I got, um, became licensed for that. No way. Um, That's super cool. (laughs) Yeah, um, I'm a vegetarian. Uh, I'm doing a low carb, high fat diet, which is hard to do at the same time. So, if any of your listeners have any good uh, recipes <laughs> for for a variety of you know low carb, high fat that's vegetarian, send them my way because I'm always on the lookout. Um, and then I don't know if if you or your audience is into enneagrams at all, but I have found that those are the most interesting uh, personality enneagram. profiling type. Um, yeah, I'm an enneagram. Uh, five wing four, which is an investigator um, and more of a philosopher side of it. And I just think it's so interesting to know what type people are and then how, how that affects how you interact together and you know, just your values and your, your drive. I, I find a lot of interest in that. Awesome. Please do share the link. And I'll add into the show notes and I'll take it myself too, because I love taking those personality tests. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the most recent I've taken was about a year ago. It was a disassessment. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a high D and high, higher I. I've always been a very, very high I, which is influencer. Um, and then D is dominant, I think. Um, but yeah, oh, I, I can't remember I, I now. Be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would, would love to take that, that personality test if you share the link. And finally, any parting advice for any freshman ninja getting into the industry? Like quick to do's and don'ts, maybe a tip or two that you learn along the way? Yeah, I think my my advice would be to really find the story behind the data and like kind of what we were talking about before, like being a high IQ marketer or analyst. And I know that's easier said than done, but like you have to push yourself because you can read data and you can just like leave it there to say, well, this one beat that one and that's it. And there's no learnings behind it. Or I've seen this happen a lot too. People just make stuff up. They're like, it's down because people don't care about sugar this month. Like, no, that's not <laughs> what happens. Like you're reaching people differently or there's something else that's changing. But like understand the actual climate and environment and what you did differently. Don't just assume that everyone else changed and and that's why you got these different results because people like culture does not change month over month like that, you know, with, with, with some trending exemptions uh people tend to be the same month to month and so like really digging into what caused changes i think is super valuable and it's really a skill that a lot of marketers and analysts are missing today amazing feedback thank you so much for joining us today we had so much fun absolutely my pleasure Again, you'll find everything we've discussed today, including Amy's information, show notes, and all referred articles on our website, programmaticdigest.com. Please take a few minutes to leave us a review wherever you're streaming this podcast and subscribe and or share with anyone you know can benefit from it. In conclusion, fam, we're all humans working in a fast advancing industry. So as a reminder, we're not saving lives. At the end of the day, our mission on this podcast is to share knowledge, highlights diversity and educate ourselves as we build this community of digital ninjas or families as we would say in my african culture stay confident